0: You weren't in Arizona this week, right? No, Chris, I've been in New York all week. You sure? I am 100% positive. I'm just reacting to the piece you posted on Thursday morning, father strips down at school board meeting in Arizona.
1: (laughs) Let's just say that that does sound like something that could happen in my local town board of education meeting sometimes, but sometimes they get a little heated. Sometimes they get a little weird, but uh, no, that was not me.
0: An Arizona father stripped down to a crop top and short shorts at a school board meeting to protest against a proposed relaxing of the student dress code. KPNX report said the father, quote, under the proposed policy, this would be appropriate in a classroom. The board was not swayed and approved the new relaxed dress code. I'm just saying stripping down to a crop top and short shorts, that's your signature move, isn't it?
1: I got to say, Chris, unfortunately for podcast listeners, they can't see the photo at the link. And anyway, you probably don't want to see it.
0: You can't unsee it. Can't unsee it. Okay. Well, I'm just glad to know that you've been local all week. If anyone has questions about that or other questions for the mailbag, send them in. You can contact Tegan via Political Wire. You can email me by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with the business. Tegan, there's no doubt that the only topic on anyone's mind. And there are political ramifications for that, which we can talk about, about it being topic A, B, C, D, E, and so on, is of course Israel and the Hamas attack. I've got to say, it's still too early for me to think about all of this completely straight. They're facing too much over there. We're facing too much. But two takeaways as I was trying to think what is a trial balloon appropriate approach to Israel. I mean, there are all sorts of perspectives, but we're doing a podcast based on politics and political realities. Two of the thoughts that came to my mind, neither of which is unique. I think we're hearing a lot about each one. One is just how risky and destabilizing this all potentially can be for the entire world. It appears we are at the beginning, not just in the middle of something horrendous and unspeakable and terrible and so sad, and I frankly can't stop thinking about much of it. But from a geopolitical point of view, obviously risks of extraordinary destabilization. Second thing is it obviously has identified some of the risks. One would hope that they don't have to be this absolutely devastating but the risks of internal divisive forces. And it's probably useful for us to think about and talk about what is a divisive force? What defines internal divisiveness? I mean, we live in a society, thankfully, where we are meant to debate. We are not meant to agree on everything. Everyone is meant to have their own point of view. That is excellent. That is absolutely how we should have it. And sometimes debates can be strenuous and yet calm. And sometimes debates can be strenuous and divisive. I even don't mind those. I do not mind a debate that is strenuous and heartfelt and divisive with the sense that you then get past that. It should not be eternally divisive. I guess what I'm really, really focusing on in this part of the discussion are the political players, and that's not just politicians. Those are political players, people playing within our political system whose MO, whose goal, whose reason for being is simply divisiveness. It's simply to destabilize the system and destabilize us from the inside. So destabilization is very much on my mind. As I said, I don't think these ideas are unique, but the geopolitical destabilization and the internal destabilization within the U.S. are some of the things that for a trial balloon conversation are on my mind. Yeah, no, I
1: think that's well said, Chris. It's obviously a horrible thing.
0: Sometime around when the Ukraine war
1: started, I stopped watching cable television. And these are the types of events that you turn on cable television again. And I have to say over the last 48 hours or so, the stories coming out of Israel are among the most depressing, horrific stories that I have ever heard. It is absolutely unbelievable. And so obviously it's hard to fit all of that into a political context so immediately because, first of all, there's so many moving parts. There's so many things we don't know. There's so many ways that this could go and it could spin out of control in any number of ways. But nonetheless, this is a political podcast, so why don't we try a little bit to understand the politics around what is going on. And one of the prisms that I look at the political world, that I look at this never-ending struggle for power that humans engage in, is that the divided side is the side that typically loses. And so the idea that one side is trying to divide the other side it's not a mistake that's how power is won and in this situation you know i think it does help to kind of look back at what was hamas trying to do besides just doing these completely evil acts what was the goal what were they attempting to do and it's impossible to get into their minds fully and so we could definitely get this wrong but the way that i look at it is there was a proposed peace deal between israel and saudi arabia Iran, who is a big financial backer of Hamas, did not want to see some sort of stabilization in the region where Saudi Arabia and Israel have better relations and that this was an attempt, perhaps, to undo that. It seemed like it was imminent, and this was an attempt to undo that. We don't know if that was the case fully, but those are the facts that we know. And something like this, obviously, something so horrific, inhuman, really, happened here, is the type of thing that makes people get back at the perpetrators. And so you've got a situation now where Israel is trying to think of their response, and the initial response is to cut out a lot of the infrastructure, is to stop any food deliveries, you know, things like this into Gaza. But what they're also looking to do is they're looking to go get and crush Hamas. And to do so, they probably need to launch a massive ground offensive where thousands of soldiers may die, many more civilians may die, and if the goal is successful, that many of these Hamas terrorists will die but there's going to be a lot of collateral damage in terms of doing this. Again, I don't pretend to be a military strategist, and so I couldn't tell you the right way to do this. But it does seem to me that the politics are pretty dicey, as you said. This could spin off in any direction. And if Israel does go with full force without regard to civilians, and there are massive civilian casualties, you could see a backlash developing within Israel, within the Western world, within the Arab world, in that this could undo any of those gains that we saw just a week week ago, which was we thought that a peace deal was imminent with Saudi Arabia. So I like to look at it in that context and through a political lens to try to understand where this might go. And, you know, I'm glad that I'm not Benjamin Netanyahu or Joe Biden because the decisions are tough. They're hard. It's way above my pay grade to make those decisions. But hopefully they're being advised. And hopefully, as I wrote in a piece this week, hopefully we can find a way to eradicate the world of Hamas without inflicting too much pain and suffering on innocent populations.
0: I mean, we want no pain or suffering with innocent populations, and it's a disaster. Obviously, that was part of Hamas's goal. They know who they're dealing with. They know that for all sorts of reasons, there will be a counterattack, and they know that that will result in terrible devastation, and it will harden hearts and harden souls for additional generations. That was among the goals, one can only imagine reacting just to a few things that you said. First of all, on not wanting to be Joe Biden or Bibi Netanyahu and the hard decisions that they have to make. There are a lot of people who have to make hard decisions. Those are two of them. I think Saudi Arabia has to make hard decisions. I think Egypt has to make hard decisions around what they're going to do with opening that border. I think that Iran has to make hard decisions. I think Hamas made its decision already. I think Jordan has to make hard decisions. I think Cutter has to make hard decisions. And I think each one of us individually are going to have to make hard decisions. It's terrible. As I said, for me, it's still so early to have that clear and saying, yet in the middle of a crisis, one must have clear thinking. On the political side and what you said about your prism that it's the divided side that loses, because we've been talking about that over the last weeks about House Republicans and McCarthy and Gates and all of that. That made me just think about Biden's speech the other day, his first speech that was so well-received around the world within the U.S., really considered to be such a full-throated, strong support for Israel. I think there was an Axios characterization of it that you put in political wire. They called it the, I'm paraphrasing, but the strongest statement from a president, a U.S. president on Israel's right to exist since Harry Truman, since the founding of Israel. I think that that was Axios's take. And so much has been made about the external audiences of Biden's speech, external to the U.S. and external to the Democratic Party. When you just said that, though, about weakness comes from being a divided side, it made me think the internal Democratic Party was very likely also one of his audiences because there is the reality of division on the Democratic side between progressives and moderates around allegations of kind of both sides and things and various views. I'm not thinking to debate that component of it. But what I'm identifying is the potential for a divide within the Democratic Party on that. And I wonder if Biden's speech was not just meant for Israelis, for the Middle East, for Iran, for the American public, for the world, but also might have been meant for the Democratic Party to say, okay, folks, here's where we're going on this. We need to stay together. Again, connecting back to some of the things that we've talked about, much in the way that Nancy Pelosi kept the Democratic House together, even through the divisions that existed there. So that divided side and maintaining cohesion within a major political party is, I think, also a major theme of our political reality today.
1: I think that's absolutely right, Chris. You know, if you look in Israel, Israel now has a unity emergency government. These attacks have unified, at least for now, the warring parties. And as we know, and warring is probably not the right word to use, but they have been fighting for years. And it has been very hard to have a stable government in Israel because of these factions. But they have come together now in the face of this attack. And if it continues, that's probably good news for Israel achieving its aims at eradicating the world of Hamas. In terms of the broader geopolitical world, you saw statements from the United States with Britain, Germany, France, and Italy condemning these attacks in no uncertain terms. And then your point about the Democratic Party is pretty interesting because some of the typical suspects who are quite critical of Israel, someone like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or our own Congressman Jamal Bowman, they typically would come out anytime Israel's involved in some violence would typically come out with a, if not a both sides statement, they would certainly be more likely to condemn Israel. What's been interesting about each of them over the last few days is how, while that might've been their instinct, they have quickly walked that back. And they have quickly tried to soften that. And Jamal Bowman, particularly in the district right outside of New York City, he was primaried in the last election primarily for his views on Israel. And he has dramatically walked back some of his statements. And he sounds almost like a different type of lawmaker right now. You've seen the one Democrat, Rashida Tlaib, in a Detroit district. She is of Palestinian descent, and she typically is also quite harsh on Israel and Israel's treatment of Palestinians. She came out after some silence, granted, but even she came out condemning these acts. And I think this goes back to my point about watching television. I don't like to watch television news, as you know. I think it's pretty bad generally. But I do think stories like this sometimes are best told through these stories of the individuals who took place. And it is impossible for anyone watching, say, CNN and watching the interviews that Anderson Cooper or Aaron Burnett have done this week with people in Israel who actually experienced this. It really does change your entire view of this and how inhuman these actions were. So there is something to be said about unifying after a a tragedy. We saw 22 years ago, after 9-11, this country came together in such a way. And unfortunately, we also saw in this country that it was ever so brief and that we kind of reverted back to our ways. So it will be interesting to see if the world can stay unified in the response to Hamas and do something to rid the world of this evil.
0: We'll have to see what happens within the Democratic Party and how those statements continue to go for some of the folks that you just mentioned. A quick note, because this is something we talked about a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago on CNN, they are crushing it, in my opinion. They are doing exactly what CNN was built to do. You and I watched Gulf War One footage many, many years ago, too many years ago. That was really a transformational moment for them. There's no other news organization that could be doing what they're doing right now, on the ground, with video, in multiple locations, covering the stories, telling the human stories, telling the military stories, telling the geopolitical stories. It's so much better of what they can do as opposed to the nonstop, navel-gazing, political talk show stuff. Was much of that providing a tremendous service? No, I don't think so. And that's part of what CNN has done going back and forth and Chris Licht trying to bring the mate back more to the right. And Mark Thompson just started this week. What a week to start as CEO of CNN. But I think their coverage has been excellent. And there's not another major US news organization. There are other news organizations, of course, that are doing it. But in terms of being on the ground with video with all of those sources you're not getting it from the networks you're not getting that from abc cbs nbc msnbc you're not getting it from fox you know they've all got you know a couple of correspondents but this is the best of what cnn does It goes back to what we
1: all learned about journalism and hope for in journalism is that the best journalism, particularly on television, is when the correspondent fades from the foreground and goes into the background. And you can do that in these stories because the stories are so powerful and it's as if the person interviewing isn't really there because the story is just being told. And it is extraordinarily powerful. And in contrast, when there are not events like this that are so absorbing, unfortunately, because they have a charter to be on air 24 hours a day with news or whatever they think is news, they resort to round tables and correspondents interviewing correspondents. And we don't want to see that. We want to see the stories. What is happening on the ground wherever it is, whether it's in the House of Representatives or whether it's in Gaza or wherever in the world.
0: Yes. The best of journalism, in my opinion, takes the viewer or the reader to a place that we could not access on our own. And by the way, that's right now in a war zone. That's in these terrible places. And we're getting those stories, but they are taking us there. And what you just described, that's not journalism. Generally, in my opinion, that's lazy and it's cheap from a cost point of view. And that just seems like a bad business model, if not a bad business. There are plenty of stories. They could be taking us plenty of places within the US. It doesn't have to be a crisis. There are stories going on every day in South Dakota, or in Maine, or Arizona, or anywhere around this country, in Montana. I am hoping that this helps fuel a bit of a rebirth. Going back to what journalism actually should be which is taking readers and viewers to a place that they cannot get to on their own, providing the context, providing the stories, and giving the readers and viewers that type of information. Let me just say,
1: don't get your hopes up, because as long as there are 24 hour news channels, they're going to be pressured to fill them even when anything else is happening. And to achieve your vision, what they would have to do on nights when there's nothing happening and you tune into CNN is they could simply tell you nothing's happening. Go do something else. Don't sit here in front of this TV and watch the same silly stories and the same silly roundtables hour after hour. Go do something else. That would be the best news is when you have no reason to watch CNN.
0: I feel like we're about to get into a discussion on ad-based businesses versus subscription businesses.
1: I suspect listeners know exactly the way we feel about those. So
0: I expect that they do. So that's a lot on Israel. That's a lot on what's happening and going to continue to happen. Our hearts go out, to say the least. There was one other topic that I wanted us to get to talk about if not very quickly. And that is to talk about our new Speaker of the House, Steve Scalise. I mean, wow, that was... Chris, slow down here, Chris. I think a, you're a bit, a bit premature here. That was a remarkably smooth process. No chaos there.
1: Well, as we, uh, as we record this, just to give our listeners a little bit of context, the House Republicans on Thursday are about to go into a closed meeting, no cell phones allowed, where they're going to attempt to hash this out. And I'm sure Steve Scalise was trying desperately to get to the 217 votes that he thought he could get if he simply won the majority in their conference yesterday. Well, if you can believe Twitter, and I know that seems a little ridiculous, but you've got a lot of journalists who've got their own whip counts right now. Somewhere between 10 and 30 Republicans have said they're not voting for Steve Scalise on the House floor Whenever it comes to the floor, if it comes to the floor, and that means Steve Scalise isn't going to be speaker because he needs to get 217 votes. And so that creates all sorts of interesting political things to think about, like what are the Democrats going to do? And are the Democrats going to try to take advantage of this situation? Because like we were just saying, it's the divided side that typically loses. And Hakeem Jeffries has a completely unified party behind him. And he could get to 212 votes, which means that he's only five votes short of the majority. That's not going to happen. But he does have votes and he does have enough votes if they decide to play that way. Because it seems right here, as we record this, that Steve Scalise is not going to get the votes. So what are the permutations?
0: How does that play out? So, Steve Scalise doesn't get the votes. Do you mean on round one? Do you mean on round 15? You said that, you know, as of this recording, Republicans are going to meet behind closed doors, try to hash this out. By the time this drops, they either will or will not have done that. Let's say they have not, because if they have, then it's a moot point. But if they have not, can this go to the House floor? You know, a 15 round McCarthy food fight might look like nothing. That might look like the appetizer compared to uh, this main course.
1: Yeah, I don't think they'll bring it to the House floor unless they're close. Scalise would need to be much closer than he is in terms of being able to secure those votes because maybe when push comes to shove, the embarrassment of the Republicans not being able to elect a speaker again would cause some people to flip. But Chris, this is not your father's Republican Party. They used to fall in line behind their leaders. This is not that party anymore. And you have people who've said under no circumstances are they voting for Steve Scalise. And so my political instincts suggest that maybe Jim Jordan, who lost the vote to Scalise yesterday, maybe Jim Jordan's behind some of this, that he's publicly standing up for Scalise, but that he's holding some of his supporters back so that Scalise ultimately steps down and maybe Jordan is put up. But if that happens, my instinct also says that Jordan's not going to get a majority the vote, and that the best hope might be is that Patrick McHenry, this temporary speaker that Kevin McCarthy picked in the interim, who generally has no powers, that it might fall to him to put his name up for speaker and see where that goes. And then, of course, there's the possible compromise with Democrats, which I think is the least likely. But given the fact that the government is going to shut down in, what is it now? It's probably about 37, 35 days. The government's going to shut down again if it's not funded, given the fact that there is a aid package for Israel, for Ukraine for Taiwan, potentially, as well as some border security funds that the Biden administration is putting together. That's going to have to be voted on. And the whole thing is just terribly, terribly embarrassing.
0: A lot of possibilities. One thing is for sure, it is not our parents' Republican Party. Talk to you soon, Tegan.
1: Talk to you later, Chris.